Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jeff Wu with the Health Via Modern Nutrition HVMN podcast. And I'm super excited to welcome back one of our most popular in-demand guests, Dr. Jason Fung. Brother, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Yeah, I, I just, just before we went on live, it's definitely just uh, a crazy time. What is it like on the clinical side? Obviously, your practices focuses a lot on fasting, lots of interventions, but I'm sure you're getting a lot of attention and focus on COVID-19 as well. What does it look like on your end? Yeah, I mean, everything's basically been taken over by COVID. So, you know, that's a bit of a problem. I mean, there's a lot less interest in everything else, which is not necessarily good, right? Because there's a lot of other health issues other than COVID. So it's, it's all right. I mean, hopefully things will settle down and then we can get back to sort of the real, you know, big killers of Americans for the most you know, most years, which is sort of heart disease and cancer. And for that, of course, nutrition and all that sort of plays a big role. But I've seen a huge drop off in sort of interest in the last nine months, right? So it, it worries me a bit because most of the science people are interested in how to stay healthy, how to, you know, maintain a good weight and healthy habits. And that sort of has totally gone out the window. I see it in my patients, they're eating whatever they feel like, they're not doing anything to maintain their health. There's almost this attitude, well, I'm going to die of COVID anyway. So, you know, why, why don't I have some ice cream and cookies? And it's like, well, you know, so, so hopefully we get past that and we get through all this and then we can sort of start focusing again on good health. Yeah, no, I think it is interesting if we take the emotion out, look from a historical lens and just step back in terms of numbers. I think you're indeed correct. The biggest killers of us living in America, Canada, North America, right? Kind of the first world countries are cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, you know, metabolic syndrome related diseases, right? These chronic diseases. And of course, we're going to talk about your brand new book, Cancer Code that dives into cancer. But I think before talking about kind of like the big killers, I, I think it is very ironic to me that there is an immunometabolic impact on, on COVID by some of these fasting methods or some of these metabolic lifestyle interventions that you talk and we talk about all the time. Is that something that you wade into or is it just too politically, scientifically hot to, to give too much commentary on? I've just noticed that some people are kind of fighting the good fight there, but it's like very easy to get attacked as charlatan-y, where's RCT data? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, the problem is that there's a huge amount of emotion on both sides. So it's always like if you say something that's sort of like critical of the response, then all, oh, you're like an anti-vaxxer and, <laughs> you know, you're one of these deniers. Or if you say something that's sort of anti the other side, then they're like, oh, you're just a, you know, you know, you're just a puppet of the government. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> the, the truth always fought like, and usually falls somewhere in the middle there uh, rather than being on sort of one extreme or the other. But things are so polarized these days that uh, you really can't even talk. It's, it's a terrible, you know, sort of environment out there. You know, it, it, you get attacked all the time for whatever. I mean, what we know about metabolic disease and COVID, of course, is that obesity is like this huge, huge, huge risk factor. Uh, as it is for many, many diseases. So people with type 2 diabetes, for example, get much more infections than usual. People who are obese tend to do worse than usual. They have impaired respiratory function. So, you know, if you're very overweight, then your lungs are pushed up. You don't, you know, have harder work with breathing, which is going to make it tough for you if you do get COVID. So the issue is not very controversial, but 
it gets sort of lost in the message, you know, of let's, let's try and make sure you lose weight. I remember I, you know, talked about this a little bit before and then you get, so I was talking about obesity, which I do for the last, you know, seven or eight years, right? Because that's my area of interest. COVID as a virus is not my area of expertise. So, but obesity is. So, you know, I talk about stuff like that and people are like, oh, you're trying to profiteer off the COVID. I'm like, oh my God, like what the hell, right? It was really tiring. Yep. So social media in general is very polarizing, I think, in that way that people think feel the right to attack each other. You know, it's not, it, it's, it's crazy because you, you say something and it's like, it's not something you'd never say. Like if you met somebody at a party, you wouldn't go up to them and say, I think you're really stupid. Right. But yeah, people will say that on, blah, on the blah, internet. Blah, blah, yeah. And it's like, okay, you can say that, but I'll block you because I don't want to talk to you anymore. Right. Because if you said that to me at a party, I'd say, go away. Don't talk to me. Right. That's the yeah. same thing I do on social media. But for some reason, everybody these days feels it's their right or obligation to say stuff like that. And I'm always thinking, you know, the whole thing, and I, I suppose that's why they're getting raked over the coals like Facebook and, and these guys. They're getting destroyed and, you know, they're getting pulled up in front of Congress and they're trying to break them up and all this stuff, right? Because the, the, the problem is that there's no sort of civility anymore. Like you just start attacking and the more you attack, the more extreme you are, the more likes you get from the other people who are extreme. So you wind up with this very polarizing atmosphere, which is not conducive in any way. And it's on both sides, right? So you know that the people who are sort of against the government position, they, you know, they have their beliefs and I think it's, it's fine. Like you're allowed to believe whatever you want. But you say that and you get censored. So there are people like professors and stuff who have, you know, their lectures taken down and tweets removed and stuff. It's like, um, but they work at like Johns Hopkins and they're a professor of economics. They're not like some quack out there. Right. Right. And it's like, if you never question sort of authority, how are you supposed to learn? If you think that you know everything then, and, and, and you're going to shut down everybody else's dialogue, how are you going to learn anything? Because you think you know 100% of everything. So this is the problem I see uh, there now. So I mean, I, I, I sort of, you know, I'm not, I'm not super political in that sense. But on the other hand, it's, it, it, you know, I've been really sort of dismayed by the whole conversation. It's like, you know, when you say bad stuff, and I don't care if you're against the government or against the the people against the government, like, I don't care what side you are. If you start attacking the anti-vaxxers or you start attacking the government people, either way, if you say something bad, that reflects on you, not on the other person. The other person will believe whatever they believe. Like, if you think that the vaccine is the greatest thing, that's fine. If you think the vaccines are the worst thing you could do, that's fine too. You're allowed to believe whatever you believe. That's our freedom. And these freedoms are under attack because if you say that you don't like the vaccine you will get censored it's like what if you know in the middle ages you thought the sun revolved around the earth well that was good and if you thought the earth revolved around the sun then like copernicus then you were like banished like that's we've gone back to the dark ages it's like let people talk it's a tough thing and, and i think I feel it because i i sort of try to bring up things that are not in the sort of mainstream. Right. So fasting, for example, when I started talking about it six, seven, eight years ago, 
it was far out of the mainstream. People thought it was the stupidest thing you could do. But of course, there's a lot of data behind it. And if, if I was just shut down, then sort of thousands of people wouldn't have been able to help themselves. And I'm not selling them anything. Like all my, all, like these podcasts are free. My YouTube videos are free. My yeah, think, blogs are yeah, free. I think I literally haven't given you a dollar, but like the value <laughs> that we're creating in terms of like yeah. just literally hundreds of thousands, probably combined over a million views in terms of the podcasts. Oh that. yeah. Like some of my YouTube videos that are out there, like I didn't publish them, but they're like, you know, five, six million views. I'm like, okay, well, you know, that's all free information from a physician. I've been trained, you know, through medical school and specialty and stuff. If you don't believe me, that's fine. I don't really care. But if you do believe me and you do it and you help yourself, great. That's fantastic. Like, you know, and this is the sort of thing that is allowed, but not allowed in the last sort of nine months, right? So if you if you want to bring up sort of new thinking you have to allow people to discuss it no matter how crazy you think they were like they we thought fasting was crazy well you know what i've seen thousands of people who have been helped by by doing it so that's great and you know it doesn't really matter why they're helped but they're 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 obviously healthier but it doesn't matter if you believe it or not right these people believe it and they've been able to get better objectively like you can look at their blood work or whatever so we have to have this sort of discussions and we have to be civil about it it's like honestly i think the whole problem is if you you know there's so many people out there that want to just generate negativity because it generates likes i think yep. like if you are on one side now it doesn't matter which side if you're you know pro vaccine or pro lockdown or anti lockdown it doesn't matter which side you're on but you start being hysterically, you know, anti the other side. Ah, oh, these people are jerks. They're idiots. They're the biggest idiots in the world. Then you get likes from those people. So, so then you're encouraged to do it. But at the same time, it's like, you know, and you, and you feel good about getting followers and stuff. But it's, 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 a, it's a terrible way to get popular, to spread negativity. I, like, I never do that. I, I just put out the information. People who like it can like it. I get attacked all the time, but, you know, I mostly ignore it because it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. I spread my message, what I believe, which may or may not be true. I think it's true, obviously, but that's it. And that's the way we really should do it. Like, just like you, right? You don't go out and start slamming people who think it's stupid, right? It's like, no, you, you can allow, if you think it's stupid, you're allowed to believe that. Yeah. Don't tell me what I should believe. That's all. Hey guys, this is Jeff Wu interrupting my podcast for a special offer, a special announcement for you. As you might know, HVMN just launched the new Keto Food Bar and they're yummy, they're delicious and I want to make a special personal offer for you to give you a discount to get those into your hands. So for a limited time only, use the discount code JEFF10. That's G-E-O-F-F number one, number zero, JEFF10 for a 10% discount on the Keto Food Bar on HVMN.com. We got Mexican hot chocolate, one of my personal favorites. We got vanilla shortbread, we got chocolate chunk, and of course, we got the everything bagel, which is legit savory, garlicky, oniony. And these have become staples in my own personal life. I like to eat this with a cup of coffee for breakfast. I've been using the Mexican hot chocolate, the vanilla, as grab-and-go bars when I'm biking, when I'm out on the town, when it's not easy for me to eat healthy, eat keto. So these are certified organic. They actually are yummy. 
They aren't these weird synthetic artificial tasting bars you might see that are keto compliant but have a bunch of fake IMOs and things that actually spike glycemic response. And of course, while they're also certified organic and they actually taste good, these have been tested on continuous glucose monitors. So they actually have flat glycemic response on your blood sugar. So essentially it's a, a fasting mimetic, but we're still delivering almost 300 calories of healthy fat and 12 grams of healthy protein and grass-fed collagen. These are legit. I'm so excited for you to try them and use my personal discount code, Jeff10, to get a special 10% discount. So check it out and enjoy and back to the program. Being based in Silicon Valley, I know some of the key thought leaders on, on both sides, right? Like I, I know Tristan Harris, the kind of the star of uh, The Social Dilemma uh, on, on a casual, you know, friendly basis, just socially. And then obviously know a lot of people that work at Facebook's, Instagram's, Twitter's of the world. Yeah, I think it's just like, it, I just see similar analogies to our healthcare incentive infrastructure, where I think every individual is trying to do their best locally, but the whole, infra, whole system is messed up in the sense that I don't think any individual Facebook engineer is trying to like screw over democracy or screw over communication, but just incentive structure. And exactly what you said, it's if you are more polarized, more extreme, and I've seen this myself and I've seen that like engagement rate, right? Like the more crazy thing you say, you're going to like get a lot, half the people really, really going and half the people really, really hating you. And then once you have like that viral tweet that has like a thousand engagements, you're like, wow. Like you see that like little dopamine hit of getting that much attention. You're like, hey, I got to say more crazy, more provocative things. That is an infrastructure system, just like I think with payers in, in terms of codes, right? It's like so much easier to, to code for a metformer and insulin versus nutritional counseling because like you get more points, aka dollars on some of these codes versus the other versus your effort, right? It's You can write a script in like a second with all the notoriously messy doctor handwriting or you can sit down with a patient for, you know, I literally one-on-one -on -one for, I don't know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Like, I don't blame, you know, an individual practitioner who might have medical school debt to just be like, all right, I'm going to stack up a bunch of prescriptions because it takes a long time, a lot of effort to coach someone through a dietary intervention. Yeah. So, yeah, you got to change the incentives. And I think that's just like a, a, a challenge that's a little bit above, you know, our pay grades. I mean, this is like a debate with our, our, our policymakers. And I think I'm, I'm exactly in alignment with you. We need to decide if this is a public square of conversation. And do people really want some moderator at Facebook or Instagram to decide the truth? And I think that a lot of people don't really realize what that means to be the latter. Do you really want some person at Facebook deciding, oh, this is correct medical advice, this is incorrect medical advice, even when the medical community, the actual domain experts are still, it's not closed science. Like, and I think that's almost anti-science, right? I think science is built on doubt and challenging and constantly retesting and testing. And it's funny to me that the pro-science people basically look like faith-based arguments. And, and it's like this, these inverted roles in, in how these things are, evolve. Well, exactly. Because the people who are saying, the people who are saying the other side is anti-science are the ones trying to shut down the debate, right? They're the ones that are saying, stop the misinformation. They're killing it. Like, you're trying to stop the debate. And I don't know whose side is right. Uh, eventually, time will tell. But it's sort of like, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's a very scary sort of thing because at some point, you have beliefs that if you propagate them, are obviously wrong, but if they're 
you know, if you don't shut down debate, you'll never see it. Just like forced sterilization that we had, the eugenics movement that we had. You know, it's it's the way that you had the Nazi ideals just propagated throughout the entire society. Because German people are not bad people. They're people just like you and me. But the system was very bad because they said, well, you know, we hate the Jews and we hate the Slavic and we these people are subhuman and we need to sterilize the mental defectives and stuff, right? So obviously the German people were sort of brainwashed by this sort of propaganda that went through. And you only get propaganda when you start shutting down the other side, which they did, of course, with the military and the SS and all that. All dissenting points of view were basically slaughtered and killed. But you can influence a whole society. And, and, and you know, that's why it's so dangerous. That's why freedom of speech and that sort of stuff is so important and one of the sort of pillars of why you know, the United States and Great Britain, which has always supported it before, sort of uh, ha- have been successful as opposed to, say, you know, 1980s era communist Russia or something where you didn't have that, you know, because it's a powerful ideal. It seems very messy. It seems better just to shut down uh, the other side and say you're anti-science. But saying that and shutting down the debate is actually anti-science. Science is about debate. It's about you only move forward when things you, you have people which say this part is wrong. We need to do it this way, and then it's like, oh, you're right. Let's move forward, right? So it's it's a dangerous thing. And same, you know, the incentives as you say are wrong. You know, and this is what I talk about a lot in uh, sort of both obesity, type two diabetes, and now cancer, is that the incentives are all wrong. Like you have a lot of money being made in treating cancer. So if you prevent cancer with nutrition or learning about it well there's no interest in that because there's no dollars like people are interested but they're not interested interested right you know a way that when you work you know you work you know if you're an entrepreneur you're working 40 80 hours a week to make a living to make dollars i mean that's much more interesting that's much more incentive than anything else and so if there's literally billions of dollars to be made in cancer medications well hey guess what the entire focus is on how to treat it after it's done. Not what is it, what is it, what is what causes cancer? How can we prevent cancer? What is cancer? That's the most interesting question, I think, actually. Yeah. Again, I'm just like thinking in terms of like an e-commerce analogy. It's like once you get someone hooked on a drug that needs to be taken chronically, that's massive what's called lifetime value, LTV in e-commerce or Silicon Valley terms. And it's like you're going to charge someone a million dollars up front to prevent them from getting cancer. Like I would take that offer, right? Like, cause like, yeah, I don't, no one wants to go through cancer, but like you don't, no one gets paid to to prevent someone from getting cancer. But yeah, that drug treatment over 20, 30 years, that's a massive subscription, essentially revenue off of that person's life, which is unfortunate that yeah, the incentives are, are misaligned there. Yeah, and that's why there's so much research into sort of the best drug for cancer and almost no discussion about, like, what is this disease? And I actually found that to be an entirely fascinating topic that most oncologists don't really even think about. Yeah. Right. Because this disease, so cancer as a disease. Before we talk about cancer, I want to just wrap up uh, the final thought in terms of, of COVID, which is. 
I think as you were hinting at, if you look at a lot of the associational data, correlational data, and as you mentioned, obesity, type 2 diabetes, some of the worst comorbidities in, uh, in terms of poor outcomes or mortality from COVID-19. And it feels like just in general mass media or just mass education that a lot of the interventions suggested are wearing masks, social distancing, which are all great. But there's almost like an acceptance of, oh, like, it's great to like drink a lot of alcohol or just stuff yourself with your favorite comfort foods, which is, you know, no one has done this. I don't, I don't, I haven't done the research or the science, but like my suspicion is that the, it, the worsening chronic health is a very significant indicator or, or, or a contributor of just bad outcomes, right? Like you're making the pop, our population even weaker towards the immune assault from COVID-19. So I'm just like wondering, like, is that something you've seen as well? Like there's such, that's like three cheap interventions of like, hey, get some sun, you know, take a walk around the, the, your, your house every morning, get a little bit of vitamin and improve your vitamin D. And like, yes, I think we want some comfort food. Like I was definitely a little bit just like, you know, reverting back to like just what's easy, what's comfortable back in March. But I was like, hey, this is going to be the long haul. Like I've gotten fitter than I have before because it's just like, one, we have a little bit more freedom of time, but it's like, hey, this is important. This should not be a call to, hey, you could just let go and get fat. Like, hey, you can actually do something about this in your day-to-day life. Yeah, and, and I think that, that that's, that's what happens when you wind up focusing sort of 90% of everybody's health focus on a single disease is that you think, well, if this is what's important based on, you know, the availability heuristic, for example, you say, oh, the only thing anybody's talking about is COVID. So that's the most important thing. I don't need to worry about anything else because I'm worried about COVID. I'm, I'm wearing my mask, so I'm good. I'm staying home, so I'm good. So let me have some cookies. The, the problem is that we know that there's so many problems when you get metabolic disease. So uh, like type 2 diabetes, if your sugars go very high, if you're gaining weight, for example, you're going to put yourself at risk of COVID. But worse than that, in the downstream, you're going to be at higher risk of heart attacks and strokes and all that other sort of thing. And this is where it's a little bit discouraging to me in terms of public health is that what we've got is a focus almost exclusively on a single disease to the detriment of every other disease. Because if you're focused on this, you're not focused on that. So I see it all the time in my patients. That is, they're not leaving their house like ever, which means they're not getting any exercise. They're gaining weight like crazy because they're really allowed to do nothing other than eat. So they're eating. They're eating and not exercising. (laughs) You can predict what's going to happen to that. And these are older people. Probably like a socialization, mental health crisis as yeah, well. Right? Yeah, like exactly. I've had like friends who are just seem, seem pretty flat because it's like, yeah, they're just cooped up. Yeah. And it takes a big toll on your mental health for sure. So the problem is you can't see your friends. You know, they're like, I oh, have a Zoom party. It's like, have you had a Zoom party? They're terrible. <laughs> like they're compared to a real party. Pass, they're yeah. absolutely terrible. Like they're nothing like a real party. Like, you know how it is. There's 10 people and everybody's like, oh, sorry. Oh, no, you talk. What? Uh, this is a, you know, it's terrible. So the you know so ha- no matter how much you try and make it like oh this is great 
It's like, you know, what we're doing is we're sort of denying our own humanity and that we need other people. Like we are social creatures. I don't, and, and, and somebody has to look at all of that. I mean, you know, I, I think that you can do like what, you know, the lockdowns and the masks and stuff. You always have to look at the cost. Like, I hate that people pretend that there's no cost to these things from a social standpoint, because when you, when you affect people socially, you affect them, their health as well. And there's almost zero discussion about that. So it, it's, it's, you know, we got to do what we got to do. And hopefully with the vaccine, everything's going to sort of improve in the long run. But, you know, we do have to focus again on some of these other issues because it will, you know, if, 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 if you get through COVID, but you put on 50 pounds, well, guess what? You've put yourself at big, much higher risk of a heart attack which is always a huge killer of Americans and you're putting yourself at risk of other diseases. So, yeah, I think that we do have to get back to sort of a sort of more normal. You got to sort of weigh everything together. And, and to some extent it's, it's the media's problem. Like, you know, we, we have these, we have just so much, you know, debate all the time. So then the other issues like, heart disease and cancer and kidney disease, they all just get lost. Yeah. And I think just even to add on to that, I think no one's really incorporating or calculating the economic damage, right? Like I'm in downtown San Francisco. I see so many boarded up shops. I talk to a lot of when I'm taking, doing takeout, I talk to the owner and, and everyone's just struggling. And then on the other hand, I see all the tech entrepreneurs that I'm close with literally just literally becoming billionaires and it's like man like there's just gonna be a lot of economic carnage over the next year or two as people yeah but it's realize that, that. Like, so many people have made so much money and so many people have lost so much money this year and i think it's just like there's no one that is synthesizing all of this and making policy decisions consistently right it's like there's like the obvious blood on hands of people dying of covid but i think like the invisible damage of just like family-run businesses being destroyed and like blood, sweat, and tears building these small businesses. It, it just, I think it's very hard to synthesize all of that together into a consistent policy. Cause it is like very, very sad when I see videos of, you know, some uh, restaurant owner who just put $23,000 into building out, you know, heating lamps and outdoor dining and then it gets shut down. And but like right across the street, there's like a corporate like takeout movie, you know, outdoor movie theater that, that's being sanctioned to be able to run. And it just is like, like it's, it, it's so hard to digest and incorporate. Cause I don't think anyone, I th like, like, you know, I think you have Dr. Fauci, clearly an expert epidemiologist, virologist, but like, is he actually, is he actually accounting for the economic damage, the sociological damage? And like, who's synthesizing all of that together? It's like not very clear. It's exactly. And, and I think the problem is that you have what people call the K, K, you know, K shaped recovery, right? So the people on the top actually get richer. So they're not spending money on restaurants. They're not traveling. So they're saving money. They're able to work from home. So guess what? They're still getting paid. And then you have the people on the bottom who get worse because they're the ones who have to go out there and, yeah. uh, you know, and they can't because they're shut down. So you're taking it out on all the people who, who can least afford it. I remember somebody tweeted out, it's like, there's no actual thing as a lockdown. There's only rich people paying poor people <laughs> to deliver their stuff. <laughs> and I thought that's a terrible, un but unfortunately true way to look at things. 
because what you see is that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Everything you look at, all the economic data you look at says the exact same thing. Like, look at it. Real estate prices going through the roof. Stock prices going through the roof. Well, if you're rich, you have those things and you're making a ton of money. And if you're poor, you don't have those things. You're not making any money and you lost your job and your business got thrown out of business and you have no prospects anymore. So the, the social inequality and social injustice of what we're doing, who's taking that into account? Because there is a potential huge problem. Same thing with the schools, right? So you shut down the schools and what you get is a situation where people who go to private school are doing fine, you know, and the people who go to public school are getting screwed like crazy, right? And it's not. Fair and and I just don't think that it it is fair to do this to people and you know it's not it's 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 a problem in the long term because when you have social injustice that's when you get big big long term problems I mean you get when you have too many people like when you get this big divide between you know what you want is a nice middle class who's doing well but you've got this k-shaped recovery where where you're actually splitting people into the haves and the have-nots then you get a lot of anger from people on both sides oh you know these people are rich let's just tax them all or let's just take their money like robin hood we're just going to take it and it's like, well, you know, now all of a sudden you've got more than just a COVID problem. You've got huge structural problems. Like I have a friend who does, you know, uh, nails and, you know, pedicures and stuff, right. right? Been doing that for about 15, 18 years, built her business, basically destroyed. Like her clients have left. They'll probably never come back. Under so much stress, she's gained so much weight. And guess what? Her entire life has been completely destroyed by COVID because she has no business. She lost it. She spent a long time building her clients, building her business. It's been completely destroyed through no fault of her own. She's under a huge amount of stress. She's losing her house. She's moving back with her mom. And she's like, you know, 40. It's like, okay, her entire life has been destroyed completely. And what does she get? She gets a little bit of a tax break and then she'll go on welfare. It's like, whoa, you just destroyed this entire person's life with no evidence that she actually had done anything wrong. Like what if everybody had worn masks and you did this? Could you have prevented that? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But it's too late for that now because her, 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 her entire life is destroyed, but nobody cares. And that's the other thing that I find disturbing. Nobody cares that these people have have lost everything and they don't know what they're going to do next year like she has no other skills uh that's what she's done for 20 years like she she's uh, you know thinking of flipping burgers right it's like great you know her her you know it's it's, it's just there's there's just too much i mean what we've done is so unprecedented in so many ways that i just worry that there's so many so many uh fallouts that we're not thinking about and you know, and I'm not saying that we did the wrong thing, but I'm saying somebody needs to actually think about this, not just say lock it all down because there's there's a cost to it. And I, I don't know that 
I don't know what the right answer is. Like, uh, like I said, I'm willing to say that the truth almost always sits somewhere in the middle, right? Not, not on one end or the other. But. Yeah. And I think this is like an important conversation. So it feels like we, people can't have it and it doesn't feel like the people in charge are having it either. And I think that's what's just scary where it's like, like the, the car is piloting itself. And no one's got the wheel. And it's just like, okay. Uh. Yeah, that's that's what it feels like on a worldwide basis. Because I, I don't blame anybody specifically because the whole world's doing the same thing. You see it everywhere, right? And then if somebody does well, it's like, you know, and, and to, to some extent, I find that the problem is that we've sort of abandoned a lot of logic. That is, when you look at a lot of the arguments that are made, so they said, for instance, New York, was obviously very, very hard hit at the beginning of the pandemic, right? And then they said, well, it's because they were so lax in terms of their response. And it's like, okay, well, this is classic circular logic. So you say that we know that they had a lax response, a poor response, or the United States, for example, had a very bad response to COVID. Why? Because they had a lot of deaths. They had more deaths than most other places. Okay, so okay, so you have so many deaths because the U.S. responded very badly. Well, how do you know the U.S. responded very badly? Because you had a lot of deaths. So A proves B and B proves A, right? So you had a lot of deaths because you have a bad U.S. response to COVID. And then you know you had a bad U.S. response to COVID because you had a lot of deaths. So you haven't actually proven anything. It's classic circular logic. What if you just say... The U.S. has more chronic disease and obesity than anybody else in the world by a, a fairly long shot, and that's why they suffered more. A perfectly reasonable explanation that doesn't involve, hey, we're doing something wrong. You might be doing something wrong, but you might not, right? The fact that you did worse than everybody or better than everybody doesn't prove anything, right? And this is the way things are. We say New Zealand did well they, because they had very few, so they had very few deaths because they had such a great response. But how do you know they had such a great response? Because they had less deaths. doesn't prove anything. Same thing with India. Classic circular logic. But you look at India. India had one of the most strictest lockdowns. Peru had one of the strictest lockdowns in the world. And they did worse than almost everybody else. India is like number two in cases. So it's like, okay, so they had a lot of cases. And you say that's because they had a very poor response. India had a very poor response. But then when you look objectively... They didn't. They had a very, very strict response. They shut everything down and they had gangs of people roaming the streets, beating you up if you're out of your house sort of thing. Okay. So it was a very strict response. So that therefore you can't say that, you know, well, it proves you had a poor response just because you did this. It's like, okay, well, since this is a basic logic problem, why doesn't anybody talk about that? Right. Uh, maybe this would have happened anyway. Like, you know, there's just too much unknowns about it that to, to just say well we're having more cases because of what we did maybe this was going to happen anyway like you know this whole second wave how do you know the second wave is due to the fact that we've got lax in our social distancing there's actually no proof that social distancing actually works ever there's no studies on social distancing and this is uh, you know there are studies on mass and this and that but as soon as they don't you know, there's this Danish study and stuff. But as soon as they don't confirm what you think that they show, and I'm very pro-mass, by the way, but 
it gets shut down, right? It's like, oh, let's not talk about that study anymore. Or that there's some study in the New England Journal that showed that the social distancing doesn't really have as much of an effect in terms of reducing it. And it's like, well, let's not talk about that anymore. It's like, well, why not? That's what's anti-science is that the fact that you take one side and you say, no matter what evidence, scientific evidence you have, we're just not going to listen to it. Even I think even compounding that issue is that I think our public policy health folks also just try to dumb it down for people. I still remember Anthony Fauci coming out on TV in like March, April being like, yeah, don't wear masks. Yeah. And like, clearly, I think the Surgeon General Fauci, like they, they probably would have helped. But like this underlying subtext was like, hey, we've got to save masks for the healthcare providers, which is fine. I think you got to just be honest, though. I think people like don't like being talked down to. I think it would have just come off much better if our, our leaders were saying, hey, got to save the you know, the N95s towards the nurses and doctors because they're on the front lines, give them the best body armor for everyone else, wear, you know, a, a, a cheapo mask. Like, and just, just don't say, hey, don't wear a mask, doesn't help, right? Because then you flip flop 180 two months later and it's just like, man, all this thrash. And you just like, and, and again, like, I get there's nuance, I get there's like policy uh, dissemination considerations, but I think what people hate the most is hypocrisy and just being like, they clearly knew that masks could have done something. Yeah. And they just fought. And it's just like, man, don't do that to people. Yeah, I think that was the big, it was a big mistake. And, and I think that, the, I think they actually believe that masks didn't really help. Because, you know, if you look at what they were saying, it's like the Surgeon General was tweeting it out in February and stuff, right? Don't wear a mask. Please, please don't wear a mask. Like, it wasn't just... Oh, you know, please don't wear. You know, it's like you know he was begging people not to wear a mask, and of course their the, their view changed. But it's it's sort of like they never owned up to anything, right? And it's like, well, that destroys your credibility. So it's like, okay, well, I'm just going to ignore the fact that I told people millions of people not to wear a mask. Now I'm telling millions of people to wear a mask. Hey, why doesn't anybody trust me? I'm like, because you said the exact opposite thing six months ago. And then people say, we're following the science. It's like, there's no other study on mass in that intervening six months that have shown any difference. So don't tell me you're following the science. Like, oh, the science has changed and now I want mass. There's no study on mass in that six months that you change from anti-mass to pro-mass, right? The, the Surgeon General and Fauci and the CDC and all this. So it's like, again, you're telling people that you're changing your opinion because you're following the science when it's a complete fabrication. There was no science in the interim. You just changed your mind. Which is fine to change, right? It's fine to change your mind. Just be just be transparent and honest about it, especially if you're a leadership position. Because I think people are looking for these gentlemen in these, these prestigious positions for guidance, for help. It's in a very uncertain time. 100%. Yeah, and, and, and there's no real easy answers to the whole thing, of course. I mean, uh, people always say, oh, you know, if, if it's not like you're on one side or the other. Like, I've treated, like, lots of COVID patients. So I'm not saying it's not a real disease. But on the other hand, is this disease bad enough that we should shut down the entire world? Because there will be consequences of that, right? And that's a good question. I don't know that you're not going to cause more harm. So for example, in one study, I think in one of the medical journals, they looked at sort of education. And so because of a lack of education, they say people 
you know, they looked at actuarial tables and said, you know, people live less if they have less education. So they estimated. So based on that very, very iffy sort of science, you're looking at 55 million person years of life loss, which is actually far in excess of what you lost in the pandemic. And it's a pretty iffy study, truthfully. But on the other hand, at least it gives you some idea, some estimate of the cost down the line, which no other study has done. So of course, nobody talks about it. It gets poo-pooed and it's like, it's bad study. And it is a bad study, but it's the only study. So it's the best study you got. <laughs> and yes, it's a bad one, but what, what else? Like, so they had an estimate of 55 million person years of life loss. And I, I'm always like to the, I'm always thinking to the critics, what's your estimate? Zero? Zero person years of life lost due to lockdown? I think that's pretty unrealistic too. So 55 million is at least an estimate. You would, I, you would have no idea if it's 50 million, 1 million, 500 million. It's, it's actually completely unknown. But you have to at least start somewhere. And, and that's, the, that's the thing. It's what is the cost? And, and let's, let's at least put some numbers on this so that we can have an idea of, of what it is. And, and that's to me is the only rational thing to do as opposed to let's follow this fixed path. And our only treatment is going to be, you know, two things, lockdowns and vaccines. That's the only thing that we're going to think is effective. Uh, you know, like, well, you know, these have, these have huge costs. We need to think about the costs. So what if you do allow this? Will you be able to find a happy medium? Can you meet somewhere in the middle that is going to minimize your cost, right? It's not zero or a hundred all the time. There's always some compromise that you can do. But in these sort of polarizing times, there never is any compromise. We're either at 100% lockdown or 0% lockdown. And there's nowhere in between yeah. that we can agree on that is actually going to, 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 to be reasonable. Yeah, and I think even the 100% lockdown is not the same as like communist China 100% lockdown, right? And I think it's like yeah. even that 100 is not even like close to like what it took to like shut down everything. Literally, like you get boarded in by like the local communist party members like taping your door shut. So even on the like the strict, strict lockdown, we're not even having a perfect uh, replication of that intervention that seemed to have worked well for some East Asian countries, right? Like, you know, talk to friends in South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, like I can, even if I'm like, you know, currently California is locked down, I can still go to the grocery store and walk around, right? It's like not even that con comparatively of a strict lockdown as what I've heard out in East Asia. So even like the extreme intervention is not a good replication of, of what has seemed to work for certain populations across the, across the world. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to me, it's always a question of like, are you able to actually going to shut it down? Like, like the flu vaccine, the, the flu virus, we get that every year. We've never been able to do much about it. It comes and it goes, right. It's uh, and viruses are like that. They're very, very hard to eradicate once they get through short of a vaccine. But I don't know that it's, you know, I don't know that there's any evidence that, if we had locked everybody down, we'd do a lot better. I mean, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough one for sure. I mean, as you know, I see the other side too. I see both, I, I see the, the logic of both sides. Like I, I know why they're arguing the way they're arguing. They're like, look at these people dying, right? I see them. I see them in the hospital. I've treated them. And then on the other side, it's like, look at all this damage we're doing. So I see both sides. And I think that they both have legitimate concerns but yet nobody will, 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 will make that step to say, let's find a 
good solution that we can sort of just, you know, work with here so that we're not going to, so we're going to minimize the long-term impact of what we're doing because creating, you know, this sort of K-shaped recovery is, is a disaster level problem. Yeah. Like, it's like a chronic disease of our society in a way. I mean, we could talk about COVID and policy for hours We're not, and not come to a conclusion here. So I want to pivot towards cancer. Obviously, a brand new book. We've known about cancer. People have been looking at cancer from Warburg up in, in billions of dollars spent on, on the war on cancer. I know, I think President like Biden had a kind of a moonshot to, to resolve cancer. So what are the major breakthroughs? What are the major insights as you've collated in, in your most recent book? I think that there's been a huge revolution in the way we look at cancer. I call them cancer paradigms. It's a story that most people don't even know about. So what has happened sort of is that the way we look at cancer is actually very important because it determines what we our treatments are. So we started with a paradigm of cancer, which is that cancer is just a, a cell that grows too much. So if it's a cell that grows too much, then what we do is we try to kill it. And so that's how you get surgery. You cut it out. That's how you get radiation. You burn it. And that's how you get chemotherapy, which is let's poison it. So that's the paradigm that you're using. And that the, the treatment is a logical response to that paradigm of cancer. And the problem, of course, is that you quickly reach the limits. But it's not to sort of minimize it. I mean, those are still the sort of basics of how we treat cancer these days. But it doesn't answer the question of why. That is, why are these cells growing too much? And when you look at the question of why are they growing too much, we started to get an answer in the 60s and 70s and 80s because we started to discover all about genes and genetics and everything like that. So there are growth genes in our body. And if you have a random mutation in a growth gene, you could get too much growth. So, hey, that seemed to explain it perfectly. If you smoke, for example, you're going to get mutations. And by chance, if you have a lot of mutations, by chance, one of them could land in one of these genes that grows too much. And so instead of now designing treatments that random, like just kill cells, what you can do is you can design treatments to fix the genetic problem. So the first few treatments we had, which was in the sort of late 90s and 2000s, were very, very good. So we were able to fix the genetic problem and therefore, instead of trying to kill cells, we fixed a genetic problem that, and then the cancers got better and way less side effects because, of course, you're not trying to kill cells. So way less side effects. So we thought by the 2000s that, hey, this is great. What we're going to do is we're going to simply find the two or three genetic mutations of each cancer. So breast cancer, we'll find a couple of mutations, two or three or four. Colon cancer, we'll find those two or three or four key mutations. We'll design some drugs to fix them. Boom, we're going to cure cancer. And that was the, the prevailing feeling at the time. So in 2000, we had the Human Genome Project, which was where we sequenced the gene of one entire human being. We thought, well, this is going to give us the answer. But the problem is, of course, that it didn't. And so we did an even more extensive genetic survey of cancer, which was called the Cancer Genome Atlas. So instead of surveying the genes of one human, we took 33,000 cancers and we, and we sequenced the entire gene. So remember, the technology had adva has advanced so fast that, you know, at, in 2000, you had to, to sequence the gene of one person 
it took like a multinational <laughs> consortium and like a hundred million dollars or something like that. And now you could probably go to your neighborhood lab and get your whole genome sequence for like less than 200 bucks sort of thing. So the, 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 the technology is incredibly advanced now. And what happened, of course, was that this genetic paradigm of cancer that had, took over sort of the way we, we, we think about cancer, but it didn't turn out to work at all because we weren't finding two or three mutations. The common cancers would have like a hundred mutations. So if you had, you know, patient A with a colon cancer and patient B with a colon cancer and the colon cancers look identical, you would have patient A with 100 mutations and patient B with 100 completely different mutations. So it was like completely undoable. Like you can't get 100 drugs. You can't treat anybody according to this paradigm. So the progress in cancer medicine slowed to a complete halt because if you think about how many genetically targeted treatments we have that actually make a difference. You know, you can probably count them on one hand. The last survey, it was just in 2020, a study showed that if you look at all the new drugs that came about in the last sort of 20 years, on average, they extend your life expectancy by about, I think, 2.1 months or something like that. It's like 2.1 months. So these are drugs that cost like $100,000 sort of thing. Yeah. You're going to live, instead of living to 80, you're going to live to 80 in two months. And for that, you're going to bankrupt yourself and sell your house. Is that right? This paradigm really fell apart by the 2010s. It wasn't tenable any further. There was too many mutations. So in 2018, when you, you catalog, how many mutations have we found in cancer? It was around 6 million, 6 million mutations. It's like, okay, well, how are you going to fix that? Like, that's an impossible task. And so that's why cancer became such a big problem because we weren't making any progress at all because the paradigm that we were using didn't lead to any useful treatments. And the other thing was while we were making progress in other things, so when you look at the biggest killer of Americans, it was heart disease and cancer. And heart disease was getting better. But cancer wasn't. So in 1960, if you were sort of twice as likely to die of heart disease than cancer, in 2020, they're about equal. So it appears that cancer may actually overtake heart disease as the biggest killer of Americans. And it, it really shows the lack of progress in cancer medicine. So that was sort of the low point in 2010, sort of. And, and most people don't know what happened after that, which is very, very interesting that a new sort of paradigm of treatment came along to explain a lot of the things that we're seeing in clinical medicine, which is that cancer wasn't just this sort of random genetic mutation. It's actually a very targeted mutation. And it's this evolutionary process towards not a more advanced sort of cell, but a less evolved cell, sort of a more primitive cell. Uh, under under certain specific conditions of sort of chronic damage, what you get is sort of this evolution backwards towards this single-celled organism, a single-celled organism as opposed to a cell and a multi-celled organism. So the difference is that when you have a single cell, it's like a bacteria or something, they behave in a certain way. And the way they behave is that they move around, they grow, they're immortal cells. And that's the same thing as in, as in you know, cancer cells. They, they behave exactly the same way. 
And when you look at the genes in cancer that are mutated and you look in evolutionary history at where they are located, it's the same thing. It's exactly at the point between unicellular and multicellular life. And that's the interesting thing. So it's this sort of evolutionary process, which opens up, you know, cancer is now, you, you look at it not as some random genetic mutation, but it's a sort of evolution towards a sort of foreign invasive species. So even though it started out as a normal liver cell, for example, it's evolving towards this more primitive species, which is, in fact, considered foreign. And you might say, well, that's, that's, that's ridiculous, right? But our own immune system is what identifies it as a foreign invader. So the, the importance of that is now you can, you can use drugs to boost the immune system, which is like immunotherapy, to create a whole new paradigm of treatment. Because now, instead of trying to fix genetic problems, what you're doing is trying to fix the immune system problem so that our immune system can get, now get access to those cancer cells and destroy it which is a whole new paradigm of treatment and, you know, hopefully will lead to all new treatments. And, and, and that's what this sort of book is about, is the sort of detailing the sort of move from this sort of genetic paradigm, which most people, even if you go to the American Cancer Society, they say, oh, it's a disease of genetic mutations. It's like, sure, I guess so. But it doesn't explain why those genetic mutations happened. And it happened because it's an evolutionary process. So the, the, this, this, this sort of trying to flesh out this story of what cancer is and the importance of how it affects your treatment is sort of what this book is about. And it's a, it's a totally fascinating story because it's one of the, you know, biggest sort of medical mysteries in, in, you know, around because we know what causes heart disease, you know, it's a blocked artery in the heart, or we know what causes infections like COVID, it's a virus. But what is cancer, right? That's the question that nobody ever thinks about too hard, because they're so focused on how do you treat cancer and how do you make money off of it? Nobody ever thinks, hey, what is this thing? And this sort of evolutionary paradigm answers so many questions like, why does cancer exist in every one of our cells? Why does cancer exist in virtually every animal, every multi-celled animal that's known to exist? It's like, that's because that's part of our evolutionary past. This cancerous cell is actually sort of the kernel, the sort of the, the kernel of cancer sort of exists in all our cells because we evolved from single-celled organisms. So we have that sort of original subroutine that's there. We just piled stuff on top of it so that we could suppress it. When you take off all that stuff at a pile on top of it, you allow this sort of cancerous subroutine, which, of course, remember, in single-celled organisms, it's just the way they are. It's a default state. You can't devolve back to its original program. Yeah, it's a default back to the original programming, which was, all, which was never erased. You wrote other programs on top of it, right, to control that original programming. But when you take off all that other stuff, you actually you start to see this sort of cancerous sort of program come out. And that's what the chronic sort of damage does is it takes away these other things that control this thing. And then this thing is, is allowed to sort of proliferate. And that's how you get the cancer. And it's a, it's a totally fascinating way to think of cancer, because then it opens up all new other sciences that you can apply. You can apply evolutionary biology to this. You can apply immunology to this cancer problem. And now it gives you all different ways to treat it. So it's, it's, 
you know, it's not a book about how you're going to cure cancer or prevent cancer. You really can't do that. But it's a, it's a, it's a sort of fascinating book on how our understanding of cancer has sort of moved in the last 10 years, sort of this enormous way, you know, that's leading to new treatments. And, you know, the funny part is that nobody really even talks about it. I don't even see anybody mentioning it. There's no articles about it. There's nothing. So to me, it's a very fascinating story. Yep. And I think that's what's so refreshing and multidisciplinary approaches, right? Like you're almost taking a historian's perspective and tying that with your medical background and practice. And I think that if you just look at the history of science, you need these paradigm shifts in terms of how you look at how you model the, the, the problem, right? You look at physics, you can model Newtonian, you can model it in, in terms of general relativity, and then you can model it in terms of quantum uh, mechanics. And that's very different frameworks and then solutions and engineering problems to solve some of those problems. So it sounds like, yeah, if we're just thinking about cancer as a genetic issue, and those are the tools you develop, well, if it's the wrong framework to think about it, like you're trying to solve quantum mechanics using Newtonian methods, you're just not going to get anywhere. I mean, definitely see a pattern here, but I just remember your you know, kind of your first bestseller, Obesity Code, just really talking about the history, the the cultural context, right? I think is a powerful lens that a lot of scientists like just ignore, right? It's always like kind of forward leaning without like thinking about root causes, primal causes. So you can get this in Amazon. You can get this on all bookstores. Check it out. I feel like we can have another hour here, but I know we need to wrap up. So let's do shout outs. So you're on Twitter, you're on Instagram. Sounds like yeah, you're trying to avoid getting into too many fights. So let's not be mean, guys. But yeah, where do people follow along? Where, where do people get the book and learn more? Yeah, so you can uh, learn more on uh, my website. Uh, it's called thefastingmethod.com. And then on YouTube, of course, I'm also uh, posting. Uh, I've started to go back. Now that I've finished the book, I'm starting to do more YouTube videos about sort of the basics of fasting, nutrition, all that sort of stuff. So hopefully you can, you know, follow along there as well. Awesome. Cool. Well, Dr. Fung, always a pleasure to, to chat and hang out. I'll, I'll talk to you soon.